Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Hello and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Stuart Kelly. I'm the lead critic for Scotland on Sunday and write for various other journals. And it is an absolute pleasure to be here today with Michel Faber for his new novel, D, A Tale of Two Worlds. Now, I got an advanced copy. You will be able to buy it at the online bookshop, which Edinburgh is running. There's probably some very clever uh, tab to click on the screen there, but please, Welcome, Michelle, in whichever way you feel appropriate. <laughs> mm-hmm. Michelle, we'll start with talking about the elephant in the room, which is that this is a very different kind of festival, and it's been a very strange few months. How have you found it? Well, I, I'm a bit of a stranger in a strange land wherever I am and whenever I am. So when times get stranger for other people. For me, it's much as I'm expecting it to be. Before we actually hear from the book, mine came with this lovely little postcard. And you say sometimes everything I read depresses me, even things that are trying very hard to cheer me up. And it ends saying um, that this story was given to me and all I've done is hand it on. This is it. Can you unpick that a little bit for me? Um, Well, there's there's a number of things behind that. Firstly, um, I was approached by a publisher, in this case, Transworld, to help celebrate the 150th anniversary of Dickens's death. And I think they were hoping I would write something Victorian because of the Crimson Petal. Like the Crimson Petal and White, white. Uh, That was the last thing in the world that I wanted to revisit. And I thought, well, I've never written for children. And I quite fancy writing something for children. And also, this was at the time when Britain was gearing up for Brexit. And there's a lot of xenophobia about. And I, as a, a foreigner, if you like, was particularly mindful of that. So the bare bones of this, of this story came to me, but it had also almost been written many, many years ago in, in the 80s. And it's almost as if it had been waiting all those years for its chance to, to be incarnated. Because the, the first time that I tried to write it. It, um, I thought it was a book for children, but at that time I was so clueless about audiences because I wasn't writing for, for anyone out there that I had the heroine being a middle-aged school teacher who was rather depressed. And this was supposed to be a book that children would relate to. Um, there weren't actually any children in it. And I wrote about 80 pages of this, and a lot of it was really, really dull and just, you know, miserable, miserable. Um, And the only good chapter in it was a chapter where this lady goes to visit the mysterious professor whose funeral she's just attended, but she has good reason to believe that 
you know, he Something's wasn't really up. there. <laughs> and she goes to his house, and indeed he's still alive, and he's been alive for the last 250 years or something, and he's there with his very strange companion, Mrs. Robinson. Um, and that chapter already existed, except the heroine was this middle-aged schoolteacher. And I, um, I went to a literary festival a few years ago, and I did an event where I read out things from projects that had died, because I was trying to advise young writers about what makes a project viable and what doesn't. And I brought that along as an example of something that really doesn't work, where you really haven't thought it through, who's going to be reading this. And I still had these things with me when I, I visited my girlfriend, the, the writer Louisa Young, and her daughter, Isabel Adamako Young, who's an actress and a writer and an activist. And I read them both this chapter, expecting them to agree with me that this book was just laughably hopeless. And Isabel said, I'd read that. And, you know, she's a youngster and she's got lots of pep. And I thought, well, maybe this, maybe this story has got something. So I went back to it and I extracted that chapter. And another bit from later on in the book where the heroine has to comb the hair, the matted hair of um, Mrs. Robinson in her Sphinx incarnation. And just those two bits germinated into the book that you've read. And it really just seemed to want to live. And halfway through writing it, I went through a terrible period of, of various things that yes. I had to deal with. Yes. And um, I wasn't able to continue with it. And as soon as I got over my problems, the book just welcomed me back and said, hi, I've been waiting for you. Let's get on with it. There was no sense of, oh, I'm alienated from this now and I can't get back into it. It was as if it was just, you know, it knew what it wanted to be. It, it knew itself. That's very interesting. And it's interesting that you talk about the heroine as being the fulcrum that you had to get right. Mm -hmm. Because there is such a kind of classic trope. I'm thinking of characters like Lyra Blackwa in his Dark Materials, or Scarlett Thomas's novels, or Neil Gaiman's novels, in which the, it's quite important that there's a, a feisty female protagonist, someone that doesn't think they're going to be a heroine, mm -hmm. that turns out to be so. Yes. So did you use some of those other novels to triangulate how you were going to do D? Well, I read almost no fiction, so I haven't read Philip Pullman. I've read a bit of Scarlet Thomas, but not anything for children. And what was the other one? Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman. I've read lots of his comics, because I'm a big comics fan. Um, but in terms of, of this heroine, I was, I was aware that in recent years, we've had a lot of books nominally for children or for youngsters, which are dealing with very heavy subjects. True. Um, self-harm, alcoholism in the family, drug addiction, sexual abuse, and so on. And I don't know whether those books do any good or not. I'm, I'm, I'm up to be persuaded on that one. I don't have the knowledge. But I knew for sure that I did not want to tackle that sort of material 
in my book. Um, my books for adults, as you know, really go into the heart of darkness. Indeed. Um, I think that if a young reader, when they're 18, wants to go into the heart of darkness, you know, they can read under the skin if they want to. But while they're still young, personally, you know, not dictating what other authors should do, but personally, I just want to take them on a, an adventure, an uplifting, fun, uh, emboldening adventure. And that's, that was my sort of watchword. Well, I, I can guarantee to you, uh, my copy is going to my nephew mm -hmm. uh, at the end of this interview, and I'm sure he is going to love it. We're going to hear a bit from the beginning of the book, and I should say that one of the things which alerts us that this is fantasy is the letter D has started to disappear or disappear. To begin with, the first ray of light each morning always made her feel the sun was in the wrong place or she was in the wrong place or both. She would wake in her big soft bed under a duvet decorated with smiling blonde princesses and the cold English light would already be busy filling up the room, looking weird. She told her friend Mariette about this and Mariette said, it must be because you're missing the light back home. Home, said Diculo, where you're from. I suppose so, said Diculo, but she didn't suppose so really. She had no memories of where she was from and she'd never been back there. It didn't even exist. Mariette, Diculo's best friend, came from France. Diculo hadn't been there either, but it existed for sure. People went there all the time. It was just across the channel. On clear days, peering out over the cliffs at Corba, she could even see it. It was a subtle haze between the silvery gray of the water and the blue of the sky. The continent of Europe was very near. Ferries sailed back and forth from the white cliffs of Dover to a vaguely visible port called Calais, passing Corba on the way through. Under the sea, there was a tunnel for cars, lorries and other vehicles, connecting England to the world beyond. During the summer, it brought busloads of tourists to visit Corba. The buses would park next to the avenue called the Promenade and whole families of French people would walk along the cliffside, speaking their language, eating English snacks. Germans and Japanese and Spaniards and Italians and Americans too. All these people came from proper countries, countries that got mentioned in newspapers and had politicians who shook other politicians' hands while photographers took pictures. Fiona, one of Diculo's other pals, came from Scotland, which was also a country, even though you didn't have to cross the sea to get there. It was cool to come from Scotland. Everybody had heard of it, yet it was far away with magnificent ancient mountains and big modern cities, and it was on TV quite often. A good combination. The place Diculo came from was never on TV and nobody had heard of it. Sometimes people would say they'd heard of it, but after a while she would realize that they really meant another country whose name sounded similar, but wasn't it. 
I'm not from Somalia, she would say. I'm from Somaliland. People would look at her disbelievingly, as if she just told them that she came from France land or Australia land, as if she was just being silly. Or they would ask, what's the difference? And she couldn't answer because she didn't really know. Thank you so much, Michelle. Although you say that you had a concern about novels for young people which address social concerns, whether it's drug addiction or family breakup, you are in the first half of this book, this tale of two worlds, which the alert reader will realise is already a wink mm -hmm. about what's going to happen. You are tackling some pretty big things. Dekilo is a, a refugee. She's adopted. Mm -hmm. I thought it was very affecting the way you talked about her being in the lowest percentile of befriendedness yeah. Yeah. and the kind of social media pressure. Did it just come naturally to kind of seg in those concerns that I think most young people probably do have? Um. There's a number of things in, in the mix with, with Dikilo. Um, she's 13. Um, she's still a kid. And I think there are 13-year-olds out there who are still kids or, or who would like to still be kids. And there's an enormous pressure nowadays for 13-year-olds to already be worrying about all the things that 18-year-olds are worrying about. Um, and some people might say that Dikilo is an impossible creation because a kid of 13 is already going to be obsessing about body image and boyfriends and sex and all the rest of it. She herself as an individual, as the person that she is, is not. She's got inner resources, she's, she's got her own stuff, and she is young. And so that was one thing that I wanted to do with her. Now, she is from Somaliland. She is virtually the only black person in this white Kentish town. So inevitably, the question of race comes up. Um, but first of all, I don't think it's for me as a white person to write a book about what it is to be black in white Britain. You know, that's that's a book for other people to write. Um, and secondly, one of, the, um, one of the implicitly Brexit-related things in the book is an invitation to say, look, let's, let's not be so obsessed with where this person is from. Let's just look at who she is, who this person is as an individual, which I think is so important when the general conversation gets very focused on where people supposedly belong. And the third thing is that because she is from Somaliland, but she left there when she was a baby, she is a stranger in a strange land, which is the way I've always felt in my life. So that gives me a sense of kinship with her as, as a character and as a, as a human. It certainly didn't seem to me that it was um, shoehorned in, that there was a difference there. You made it 
normalized in a way which I found admirable. Yeah. At the same time, because she does have this slight distance from everything, it allows her to be the one who realizes when this yes. astonishing thing happens that all the Ds disappear. You cite the Thurber story um, about O. Yes. Uh, there's Perrick's Gorgeous story. La Disparation yeah. as well, which Gilbert Dare beautifully translated. Where did that idea come from about letters just disappearing? Um, well, I mean, technically, technically the reason the D disappears is part of the homage to Dickens. Um, so I, I wanted ways of celebrating Dickens that would not require the young reader to be familiar with Dickens. I wanted the, the book to work on two levels where the sort of erudite scholar could have a lot of fun, you know, seeing all, all, all the little references, um, but where the sort of 11 year old reader could miss all of that and still have a lovely time going through the story. And the fact that it's the D that disappears to the young reader might seem completely arbitrary, could have been any letter, but for those who are aware of the Dickens level of the book, there is the pleasure that Professor Dodderfield, who is in fact our man, um, has been reduced to being Professor Orfield because of the loss of his D's. So he is going to be just as upset as Diculo at the fact that his name has suddenly been mutilated by this disappearance of the letter D. Is it significant that her name is Dikilo, that she keeps the D when everybody else wants to ignore the D disappearing? Um, well, I mean, in, in any story, there, there is that lovely dynamic where it seems nobody notices this huge thing except the one person, you know, and, and, and um, that's just one of the building blocks of, of a story. So it, it's on that level. Um, I researched the, the, the meanings, the various meanings of her name. One of the suggested meanings was intact. And I liked that um, because I wanted to hint that genital mutilation is not a part of this story. It's not part of her story. And I alluded to that very, very gently in the chapter on the Drood. Yes. Whose, whose tongues, tongues have been clipped. Um, but again, I, I didn't want to go in, into that. That is another story for someone else to tell. Um, so I liked her name on, on that level. I liked the fact that it brought in the bullying angle in that the girls at school, the ones who like her call her Dickie and the ones who possibly don't like her call her Dick and she's not sure if they, they're meaning it to be insulting. So, you know, it, 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 it worked on a number of levels. And of course, it gives an immediate signal that this is someone who is not from originally from a, a basically all white town in Kent. You spoke there about the professor. And I think the bit where my heart leapt was when we moved from the real world of Kent mm -hmm. and England and Brexit mm -hmm. into Luminous, this other place. 
And it was just the fact that the portal, yes. there's always a portal, yes. looks like a hardback book. Yes. And I think for every child, that's the kind of great leap of imagination, that the book is the way that we enter other worlds. Well, when you were talking earlier or asking me about the degree to which the book was a gift to me, um, I knew that there would have to be this portal to enter the other world because there always is in such stories. But it really was as if someone was saying, well, of course it's going to be the, the, the front cover of a book. Yeah, of course. Wardrobes have been done. Um, so, <laughs> yes. But it's, it's a lovely tribute to the power of literature. And I think we should maybe hear a little bit about what happens when she goes through into this other world. This is um, a bit when she has been persuaded by, by the professor to undertake the challenge of getting the D back because she's been increasingly creeped out by the fact that the D is disappearing. Not only the D has disappeared from all the words, but things that start with D have started to disappear. People no longer have dogs. The entists and the octas vanish. And um, it's, it's worrying, it's frightening. So she has to find out where these Ds are being taken to and how to get them back. And this apparently is happening in um, this other world. And she's, she's very, very warmly dressed because this other world is, is bound in eternal snow, which is another one of those <laughs> tropes that you, <laughs> you find in these stories. But hell, why not? You know, these are the things, they're tropes because they work. Yes. You know, they, they, they do the thing. Um, so, Tihilo and Mrs. Robinson, who is the dog, the, uh, the guide dog for the, the blind professor, who also has the ability to change into a sphinx, are off on this mission. The professor can't come because he's, you know, more than a century old and, and blind and all the rest of it. And they sense themselves being pursued, and this is the bit where they figure out who they're being pursued by. The four figures were, in fact, four witches. How did she know they were witches? Because they looked exactly like the witches she'd seen in storybooks and films. Beak-like noses with warts on. Long, dirty, straggly hair, the color of the stuff that comes out of the inside of a vacuum cleaner. Shabby, brownie-gray robes. They didn't have those black pointy hats that Dicolo had always thought would surely blow off as soon as you flew into the air on a broomstick. They had hoods, which was much more practical. Although, the robes were not so practical for snowy weather, and none of the women had proper boots on, only odd raggedy-looking footwear that could have been scraps of other garments wrapped tight and stitched together. All four of the women were filthy, as if they'd been smothered in mud, brushed off a bit, and pulled through a hedge not just backwards but frontwards. And when they started to move towards Dicolo and Mrs. Robinson, it became evident that there were chains around their ankles, big iron chains that dragged through the snow like dead pythons. We mean you no harm, said the first witch. 
No harm whatsoever, reassured the second witch. A more harmless bunch of gentlewomen you'll never meet, said the third witch. Correct me if I'm wrong. Those are very warm-looking clothes you've got on, said the fourth witch. But not as warm as our welcome to you, sartorially fortunate stranger, the foremost witch hastened to add. I'm Dikilo, said Dikilo, wondering if it mattered that she didn't know what sartorially meant. We are the Magwitches, said the foremost witch, sounding extremely proud to be able to make this claim. Her fellow witches nodded in agreement. Our joy is to welcome all who venture off the path of safety, the second witch said. We strive to protect strangers from the great gamp, the third witch said. Because the gamp is not as welcoming as we are. No, he most certainly is not, said the fourth witch, casting a glance over her shoulder as if worried that some monstrous creature might have snuck into view. But let us talk no more of the great gamp, declared the foremost witch. Let us allow nothing to spoil the pleasure of our meeting with you. Welcome, noble interloper, with the covetable clothing. Covetable? My sister meant comfortable, of course. Of course. Blessings be upon us all to have met in peace in such a perilous place. Potentially perilous. Potentially, yes. All four of the witches stood still for a moment, breathing hard from the exertion of their energetic greetings. A bright droplet of snot fell from the nose of witch number three. Gently, fresh snowflakes started spiralling down from the sky. It's nice to meet you, said Dicolo, but it's cold and we should really keep moving. To which we all agree, I'm sure. And we will spare no effort to make it possible for you to keep moving. Although the great Gamp prefers foreign guests not to move at all, to stop moving permanently, if you follow what I mean. Regrettably true. He rips little girls to pieces, given half the chance. Not that we give him half a chance. We restrain him. It causes us great sorrow to see an innocent girl lying in bits on the snow. One leg here, another leg way over there. Heartbreaking. Dikilo looked around the landscape. It was possible to see really far in all directions. She couldn't spot any creatures other than the magwitches. I don't see anyone, she said. He is an excellent self-concealer said the foremost witch. He seems to spring out of nowhere. That's why he's so awfully proficient at tearing unsuspecting travelers like yourself, limb from limb, if we let him, which of course we try our utmost to prevent. For very little payment, I might say, taking into account the enormous trouble we must go to, said the foremost witch. The other three witches heaved a collective sigh of relief to hear the conversation get to the point at last. Fifty silver coins, said the head witch, extending one grimy hand and wiggling the taloned fingers. I don't have any silver coins, said Dikilo. We'll accept forty, said the head witch, with barely a pause for thought. That's only ten for each magwitch, said the second witch. A bargain, I'm sure you'll agree, to keep all your limbs nearly neatly in place. 
The snow was falling more thickly, making the sky go dim and grey, and the eight eyes of the witches glowed yellow as if lit from within. It was slightly scary, maybe even moderately scary, but at the same time, Dicolo couldn't help remembering a sentence from the school pamphlet about bullying. They may, for example, try to steal your lunch money. These fearsome hags were really just a bunch of schoolgirls gone bad. I don't have any silver coins at all, said Dicolo loudly and clearly. There was a pause. Well, that's a shame, said one of the magwitches. She didn't look as if she thought it was a shame. She was smiling. An awful shame, agreed her grinning crony. A calamity, I might even say, said the head witch. It seems almost inevitable that she, we shall be powerless to restrain the great Gamp from wreaking his grisly violence upon you. Although, said another witch, laying a long bony finger against her chin in a pose of having just had a fresh thought, perhaps a last minute compromise might yet avert that tragic fate. Your boots, your hat, your lovely warm coat, your gloves, those nice thick trousers, even the scarf, all very useful to a foursome of poor chilly magwitches. Remove them, unfairly snug trespasser, commanded the head witch. Give them here. She wiggled her talons again. Mrs. Robinson heaved a deep sigh. A sigh of impatience, Dicolo thought. And if truth be told, she was in no mood herself to spend any longer with these four annoying old ladies. I'm sorry, she said, but I think I'd better keep my clothes on. I'm not used to this temperature. I think I might die. That is certainly your greatest risk at this moment, remarked witch number one. Thank you very much, Michelle. Readers. There's another little in-joke in there where she says, I, I think I should keep my clothes on, which is, a, again, for the grown-ups, it's a kind of allusion to the fact that so many stories are sexualized now and the heroines are wearing almost nothing. Um, and Dicolo's not going to be one of those heroines. Yeah. I think most readers, by this stage in the book, will twig to what Luminous is really like. Magwitch is clearly from Great Expectations. There's these references to the Gamp, and we get more and more Dickensian uh, references in different kind of tribes. And I wonder how you selected which ones you wanted. I mean, did you have any characters that you thought, oh, I'd better put that one in, but it didn't fit with the story? Um, well, first of all, I went through all, all the Dickens books to, to get the really cool names to oh, see which... and... Yes, the... so to, to, to see which ones could be entire sort of tribes of creatures. And the quilps, it just sounds good to have these horrible... And he has a horror in the book. <laughs> well, yes, as well. And to, to have him multiplied, yes. multiple quilps, you know, he couldn't get much worse. And... Again, for, for young readers who haven't read Dickens and possibly never will read Dickens, um, it's important that the names contain 
what they need to contain. So Mr. Pumblechook, um, that name, I mean, because of Dickens' genius, not because of mine, obviously, con contains uh, the pomposity, but also the, the benignness, mm -hmm. um, which Mr. Pumblechook has. And the spottle toes are just ridiculous, which again is already in the word spottle toe. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, those things were gifts. I was quite surprised that Martin Chuzzlewit was such a big part of the book, because it's not one that people tend to sort of rate very highly amongst Dickens' oeuvre. Is it because it's the one where you have the visit to America? Um, well, I'm going to make an admission to you, which will horrify you as, as a bibliophile and someone who lives and breathes books. I tend to, when I write books, it tends to be research on a need-to-know basis. So when I wrote The Crimson Petal and the White, very briefly I was an, an expert on 19th century London. And that just went within months. So now I probably know as much about 19th century London as the average person, because it's all been jettisoned from my, my brain. And um, I suspect that, that now that this book is out in the world, there'll be all these Dickens scholars finding things which I've already forgotten, <laughs> because you know when I found them while researching, oh yes, I can use that, that's good and then just forgot because I'd, I'd used it, so it had served its purpose. Um, I do remember a few little bits. Um, the bit when Dicolo is captured by the Gampolonian guard and she's having a rough time in, in prison. As she's lying there in the dark the morning before, the, the night before she is possibly um, going to, to, to me sticky end, she, she has some pretty grim thoughts and those are almost verbatim the thoughts that Dickens had recalling being in the blacking factory, which was just yep. the worst thing that ever happened to him as far as he was concerned. So the, there's, there's little things of that nature that, I, that I, can, I can still remember. Warren's boot blacking factory. <laughs> yes. Yeah, which is a... Strangely, there's a whole book of satirical poems about it, which I've always wondered if Dickens actually knew. But I want to talk about the Gamp. Right. Because, obviously, Mrs. Gamp is a very significant figure in Dickens. She is drunk, incompetent, pretentious. And as she's introduced almost as soon as we get into this alternate world, mm -hmm. I was reading it thinking, what is he going to do with Gamp? Mm -hmm. And I don't want to spoil it for readers, but we should talk about it because I think it's important. We'll just say that the Gamp has a tower and a rather awful golden wig. Yes. It's pretty uh, difficult to ignore certain similarities here. It is difficult to ignore. Um, also, I don't know whether your, um, your studious habits as a youngster allowed you to imbibe British pop music of the 1970s, but there is Gary Glitter. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and he's also in there yes. with, with Mrs. Gamp and um, with the 
leader of the free world currently <laughs> and with Gary Glitter. A sort of fusion of those three um, interesting prospects. It was, it strikes me that you must have had a lot of fun with this. I mean, of all your books, this is the one where there's actually a satirical element to it. You yes. Compared to the Book of Strange New Things or The Crimson Petal and the White or uh, Under the Skin, this is far more satirical. Was it a bit of a liberation to write in that form? Um, well, there's elements of satire in the books that you, you mentioned. Um, but, the, you know, they, they, they have a much more um, um, serious purpose which overshadows the, the, the satire. I'm wary of the word satire simply because often satirists are so in love with the ideas that the characters are less important or even ciphers because they're in service of the satire. And I think this is very much a character-driven book. So in that sense, I wouldn't like people to approach it thinking they are going to get a satire. But sure, there's, there's, there's lots of, um, of satire in it. But it's, it's fun. It's fun satire. It's not, um, now that you've read this book, you are reminded of how awful the world is kind of satire. Yes, I mean, that's a very, very good point about, um, I mean, Kilo is completely roundly characterised, whereas if you asked me what colour Lemuel Gulliver's hair was, I couldn't even tell you that. I mean, mm -hmm. Gulliver is in many ways a nothing, mm -hmm. just a vehicle. One thing that I found really moving is that this book um, didn't just give me joy in the reading of it, it actually ends with hope as well. Can you talk a little bit about how you did that and why you did that? Um, well, the Book of Strange New Things, as you well know, is one of the saddest books ever written. And um, it's, it's a book which I hope helps grown-ups deal with the, the non-negotiable sadnesses of human existence. Um, I don't think 11-year-olds should need to be coping with that or dealing with that. And one of the things that young people are essential for is rebuilding things when they collapse. And we are heading for a collapse. I don't know whether it's very soon or whether it's a little way down the road, but we are, we are living in an unsustainable civilization and that will collapse and that is going to cause grief for those of us who remember what we used to have, which we have lost. Fine. But what's going to rescue us if we are rescuable as a race is the youngsters who've never known the way things were before and who've got energy and who've got juice and who've got enthusiasm and good humor and who want to hang out together and they will make whatever new world it's possible to make. And I didn't want to um, 
I didn't want to sin against that kind of youthful hopefulness and energy and buoyant spirits. Uh, I felt it would have been an enormous betrayal as, as a story maker and also a betrayal of youngsters and their potentials to have ended the book on a cynical or sort of down note. There's got to be hope and positivity at the end of a story like this. Arguably, there should be in all stories for kids because we, I know I, I appear now to be arguing against the books I mentioned before, which address those heavy issues. And I'm sure there is a place for them. But on the other hand, we've got an awful lot of depressed youngsters in our civilization. We've got a lot of 14-year-olds who are on antidepressants, which is wrong on so many levels. And whatever can help young people feel cheerful and buoyant and as if there is stuff that they can achieve. I mean, one of the, the very deliberate things that I did with Diculo, all the... Um, when she gets herself into, into terrible scrapes and needs to get out of them, she gets out of them not by using lightsabers or swords or guns or whatever. She uses her own skills that any person who has a personality that permits them to develop those skills can use. So it, in that sense, it's arguing against helplessness. Um, because youngsters who feel helpless in the face of everything that's going on might enjoy the fantasy of being able to, you know, blow up the bad guys with a laser gun, but on another level they know that they do not have a laser gun, right? Um, whereas Dikilo, she's got capabilities, and they're ordinary human capabilities, which she uses in order to you know, to help herself and help others. And I think that's, that's quite a good thing to have in, in a story. It's certainly one of the least cynical books I've read. And I think the point you've just made is incredibly important that when Dicolo does have to get out of trouble, it's things like cooking. Mm -hmm. And I think any child that reads this book would understand that it isn't about measuring exactly 250 mm -hmm. grams of this. Yeah. It's about a kind of almost a kind of jazz attitude yes, towards it. Yes. And singing, yes. which is the birthright of every child to be allowed to sing. It's been the strangest thing for me being back in churches where we're not allowed to sing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, there's something humble about that. And to what extent was that patterned in from the outset? Or was it in the process of writing? You thought this has to be a character who will use the humblest of things, the most natural of things, as the ways out of it? Um, well, part of me was thinking of the message that I wanted to give about agency and helplessness. Um, so, so that was a, a, a conscious decision. But I think also on a deeper emotional level, the older I get, the more I realize that very, very clever, cynical intellectuals possibly don't help um, to, to improve people's lives and, and get them through what they need to get through. And that's partly why, I, not in this book, but why in other books I keep coming back to religion. 
because religion is one of those things that clever, cynical intellectuals uh, mock and deride, but it is actually something that helps people through really difficult times. And I, I'm, I have a respect for anything that gets people through difficult times. The last time I interviewed you was for the Book of Strange New Things, yes. and it was one of the most difficult and affecting interviews I've ever done. And you carried yourself with a great deal of grace during it. You did say you thought you would never write another novel again. And now we have this, which is just such a, such a sort of a firework of delight. Will you return to this world? I can see this being the first of many. And certainly... Can I just use Firework of Delight on the back cover of some future edition of the book? It'll, that... it'll, it'll be in the paper <laughs> soon. <laughs> right. No, but I just thought, you know, Dickel thinks towards the end, you do the homecoming part very yeah. well, because often that's the least considered part of it. The homecoming is beautifully done. But she does say she'll go I back. needed encouragement on that, because initially I thought, well, the adventure's over, the, the aim is achieved, and kids aren't going to want to read about the process of getting home because, you know, it's all over and they just want it to be wrapped up like that. And um, I was assured by a number of people that, no, no, let her get back and revisit all those things. And when I gave myself permission to do that, it, it turned out well. Well, I really hope that we revisit the whole thing again. Um, well, may, maybe some of these youngsters can write their own... <laughs> you know, sequels. Because I'm, I'm not, I can tell you this now, I'm not going to write another book of this kind. It's already a surprise that I wrote this. Um, I don't believe I will write any more big serious books for adults. I think the Book of Strange New Things is a good place to leave it. And, you know, this book was given to me. I've given, given it back to the world. That's nice as well. And if someone wants to carry on that adventure, as long as they respect Ikilo and let her stay who she is, I'm happy. It's a gift most gratefully received. And I think if there are young people out there who do want to take on the challenge of writing something in this world, they will find from the book uh, also the works of Dickens that they can go to. Later on, they can read some of Michel's other novels, which are more serious and more somber, but are equally important. And who knows, there may be an encounter between Dicolo and Fagin or <laughs> Scrooge. So it's a chance for you to go out there, read and imagine for yourselves. Thank you, Michelle, so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.